Good afternoon. I'm uh, Christopher Preble, Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato, Cato Institute. Thank you all for being here today, and thanks also to our outstanding conference staff here at Cato who do so much behind the scenes to make our many events such a great success. I want to welcome those of you who are watching on C-SPAN and also online at www.cato.org. The Budget Control Act passed by Congress directs that on January 2nd, 2013, the Obama administration must cut the defense budget by at least $55 billion and the same amount from domestic discretionary spending. The prospect of such reductions has led to assertions that they will damage the economy and increase unemployment. For example, earlier this year, Senator Carl Levin of Michigan expressed his belief that the uncertainty created by the specter of sequestration was a real threat to the economy. Meanwhile, some people who view excessive government spending as the source of the nation's economic distress and who therefore generally oppose using federal government spending to stimulate the economy, nevertheless oppose cuts to the Pentagon's budget. For example, in his speech before the Republican National Convention, Mitt Romney asserted that trillion-dollar cuts to our military will eliminate hundreds of thousands of jobs. And the GOP platform claims, quote, sequestration would accelerate the decline of our nation's defense industrial base, resulting in the layoff of more than one million skilled workers. And later, contends a half trillion dollar of cuts to the Pentagon's budget would harm our national security and a struggling economy that can ill afford to lose 1.5 million defense-related jobs, unquote. Others, however, claim that limiting Pentagon spending would make resources available for more productive uses in the private sector and lower the burden on taxpayers. Today's discussion will focus on two related questions. Is military spending different from other forms of government expenditures? And could the impending mandatory cuts in military spending under sequestration actually benefit the economy? In August of this year, our first speaker, Benjamin Zyker, examined these questions in this paper, Economic Effects of Reductions in Defense Outlays. Uh, hard copies are available in the foyer. Uh, and online for those of you who are watching on uh, C-SPAN or on the Internet. Uh, so let me introduce Ben, our, our first speaker. He's a senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute uh, and also a member of the advisory board of the quarterly journal Regulation. Formerly, he was a senior uh, fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research, a senior economist at the RAND Corporation, and a member of the board of directors of the Western Economic Association International, he was vice president for research at the Milken Institute, founding editor of the quarterly journal Jobs and Capital, and a senior staff economist at the President's Council of Economic Advisors for the first two years of the Reagan administration. He's taught economics at UCLA and in the Martin V. Smith School of Business and Economics at Cal State University Channel Islands. He holds a PhD in economics from the U University of California, Los Angeles, and a master of public policy from UC Berkeley. Our second speaker today is Stephen Fuller. Uh, Dr. Fuller uh, is a professor of public policy uh, and regional development at George Mason University. He's been there since 1994. He served as director of the PhD program in public policy uh, from July 98 to June 2000, and again from July 2001 to July 2002. He also serves as director of the Center for Regional Analysis. 
Uh, he, uh, prior to that, he taught at my undergraduate alma mater at George Washington University for 25 years, including nine as chairman of the Department of Urban Planning and uh, Real Estate Development, and one as director of doctoral programs for the School of Business and Public Management. Professor uh, Fuller's research focuses on the changing structure of metropolitan area economies and especially on the uh, impacts of federal spending, including two studies completed within the past year that consider the economic effects of sequestration. In October 2011, Dr. Fuller focused on the impact that a reduction of $45 billion in DOD procurement spending would have on the economy. And then earlier this year, in July, he published this study, which considered the effects of the Budget Control Act uh, and sequestration on both defense and non-defense spending. And I'm very pleased to welcome him here at Cato today. So let me uh, begin by introducing Benjamin Zeicher. Ben, uh, please uh, join us here at the podium, and uh, then we'll, uh, we'll continue with Dr. Fuller. Thank you very much. Uh, well, thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. And thanks to Cato for uh, hosting this event, and thanks to all of you for your uh, time and uh, attention today. I want to discuss uh, briefly, or in summary, three topics. First, the simple analytics of proposed reductions in defense outlays in the context of GDP growth and aggregate employment. And then second, I want to offer a few brief comments on Steve Fuller's uh, recent estimates of the economic effects of cuts in defense spending, uh, estimates uh, that have received, uh, I think, a substantial amount of attention uh, recently. And Steve, when I do that, I ask uh, that you keep a straight face, unlike uh, the festivities last night. And then third, uh, I just want to offer a few <laughs> summary data on uh, defense outlays, uh, on the relationship uh, between defense outlays and GDP growth. What I will not discuss today is the appropriate size and composition of the defense budget. That would require a delineation of U.S. interests, vital, important, desirable, and marginal, and the force structures and the budgets required to defend them. I'm simply not going to get into that today. Um, so let me begin with a very simple uh, thought experiment. Suppose that crime rates fall. This might be because of demographic shifts, because of changes in policing practices, because of higher incarceration rates. Tell any story you want. But in the, in the, if we had a, an economy in which crime rates fell, you would expect there to be a decline in the demand for private security services. And that would represent a shift in demand and supply conditions that would be reflected in relative prices. And as a result of that relative price shift, we would observe a movement of resources across sectors, including, including labor. That would be a classic example of structural unemployment as labor and the owners of other resources find their most productive uses in, uh, in a world in which economic conditions have changed. No policymaker would bemoan that increase in short-term unemployment caused by a decline in crime rates. Why? Because the reduction in crime yields an increase in national wealth, and it's entirely appropriate for there to be some short-term unemployment as labor and the owner, again, as labor and the owners of other resources find their most valuable uh, uses in, the, uh, in, a, in, in a world of changed economic conditions. 
More generally, I think we can all agree that one central purpose of a market economy is the efficient, that is, most productive use of scarce resources in a world in which demand and supply conditions change constantly in the face of innumerable factors. Now, as an aside, that internal condition, constant change in uh, the economic environment, is the fundamental reason that central planning cannot work, even apart from the adverse implications of uh, central planning for individual freedom. We use market institutions to allocate resources because doing so maximizes aggregate wealth. We don't use market, uh, market institutions to allocate and reallocate resources in order to preserve jobs in any given industry. Therefore, the structural unemployment that results from reductions in defense outlays is irrelevant analytically, even if it is highly relevant politically. To the extent that reductions in defense outlays reflect an improvement in the international security environment, that improvement yields an increase in national wealth in exactly the same sense that a reduction in crime does the same. So while increased employment in a given economic sector, or increased unemployment, rather, in a, in a given economic sector is painful for those subjected to economic losses, it is not a loss for the economy as a whole because the reallocation of resources in response to changes in relative prices increases the aggregate productivity. Now, let's not forget that this reallocation process means automatically that resources not consumed in the provision of defense services are released for use in other sectors. Among those resources is labor. So the employment losses attendant upon a reduction in defense outlays automatically are coupled with employment gains elsewhere, usually with a time lag. And so again, reduced employment as an effect of cuts in defense spending is irrelevant analytically. Let me turn now to the uh, GDP effects of reductions in defense spending, and in particular, I want to focus just a bit on Steve's projection of the effects of a $45 billion uh, cut in defense spending for fiscal year 2013. I criticize Steve's work not because it's particularly weak, but instead because it's all too typical of, of that body of literature. Steve projects that a defense cut of $45 billion this fiscal year would yield a $164 billion reduction in direct and indirect uh, loss, or uh, $164 billion downward change in direct and indirect sales, about a $59 billion reduction in wages and salaries, about $27 billion in lost sales by subcontractors and other suppliers, uh, a GDP loss of $86.5 billion for 2013, and a loss of more than a million full-time equivalent uh, jobs. Now, first, just in passing, I think there's an obvious double-counting problem uh, in, in Steve's projection that I really don't want to belabor today. But again, more fundamentally, reduced employment is not an economic cost properly defined because it's not the consumption of real resources. Furthermore, resources previously used for defense can be used for other government programs or returned to the private sector, resulting in increased employment in, in those sectors. And as I read Steve's paper, his analysis implicitly recognizes this. His model is of, of short-term effects. 
But there really is, I think, a, a problem empirically. His, his implicit multiplier effect, about 1.9, is, is far bigger than those reported in the rest of the peer-reviewed literature, most of which report findings of about uh, 0.5 to 0.8. Uh, and, and this is, and I'm, I'm not going to get into this uh, today, but this assumes that the concept of a government spending multiplier makes any sense at all, which I believe it does not. Uh, that is a debate for another day. Let's um, consider the Bureau of Economic Analysis estimates of the uh, defense contribution to GDP growth. For the 11 year period, uh, the 12 year period rather, 2000 through 2011, the defense contribution is effectively zero almost every quarter. Why? Well, because the defense share of GDP, even in sort of the model, the accounting model that BEA uses, was 3% in, in the year 2000, rising to 4.7 or 4.8% in 2010 and 2011. That's simply too small for changes to have large aggregate effects. A defense cut of $100 billion a year would have been two-thirds of 1% of GDP in, in last year, in 2011. It's simply not plausible that a cut of that magnitude would have a large aggregate effect, regardless of what one believes about the underlying uh, economics. In other words, regardless of what you believe about multiplier effects and all the rest. And that's why the simple correlation between quarterly percent changes in real GDP and quarterly percent changes in real defense outlays for, the, again, the 12-year period, 2000 through 2011, is close to zero economically and never differs from zero as a matter of statistical significance in any event. Let's look at this from a, a, a different angle. Take the 20-year period, 1981 through 2000. And let's divide that period into two sub-periods, 1981 through 1989 and 1990 through 2000. Defense outlays grew in the first sub-period, 81 through 89, at 4.3% annually, but fell in the second sub-period, 1990 through uh, 2000, fell at 2.5% annually in the second period. Nonetheless, average GDP growth rates in 1981 through 89 and 1990 through 2000 were essentially identical, 3.4% and 3.3% annually, respectively. And, none, and moreover, again, none of the correlations between defense and GDP for those periods is statistically significant. Let me uh, turn briefly to a related topic, the economic cost of federal spending. The official spending data that you find in the budget ignore the adverse economic effects imposed by the tax system. That is what economists call the excess burden of taxation. And in simple terms, what that means is because taxes have distorting effects in terms of the economic behavior, the private sector has to shrink by more than a dollar in order to send a dollar to the beltway. And so the peer there's a large peer-reviewed literature on this and, and which offers a range of estimates. A very conservative one is 35 cents, that for every dollar uh, that the private sector sends in tax revenue to the beltway, it has to shrink by an additional 35 cents. That really is a, quite a conservative estimate. And so what that means is that a defense cut 
of $100 billion per year would increase the private sector by at least $135 billion per year, assuming that the $100 billion cut out of defense is not simply shifted to other federal programs. Let me uh, conclude with uh, one last point. Conservatives, I think quite properly, are, are highly dubious about the purported GDP and employment uh, benefits of federal domestic spending as illustrated by the meager effects of the Obama stimulus fiasco. There's no particular reason to believe that defense spending is different. Liberals naturally take the opposite view. Defense spend, or domestic spending ra rather is the path to natural, national enrichment while the purported economic effects of cuts to the defense budget are not to be discussed. So we have, I think, very, very unfortunately in this election season, a real inconsistency on this issue with the same people arguing against massive domestic spending increases as a source of growth and employment while arguing against defense cuts because of the purportedly adverse effects on growth and employment and vice versa. Suffice it to say that that kind of inconsistency on both sides of the uh, political divide, I think, is not very conducive to uh, clear thinking. And with that, let me finish. Thank you very much indeed. <clears throat>
theoretically, we put have more money available for the private sector. It's a good thing. If they needed it, if there was a shortage of liquidity, Ben Bernanke's been working on that. You can, that's a different study too. So what I've, what I've reported, and which has been uh, presented here to some degree, is, is a way to calibrate what the costs of reduced federal spending are. And it's not complete. So the, the two, the, the more recent study, which looked at federal spending uh, that affects payroll as well as procurement, and not just military equipment, as has been cited in my earlier study, but crossed all discretionary categories, would cost $215 billion in lost GDP activity. That's two-thirds of what's projected to grow. If the economy grows at current projections somewhere around 1.92% next year, this would represent, just to give it a, a reference point, two-thirds of, of GDP. About $110 billion in labor income would, is associated with $40 billion in federal payroll. So to understand what is tied to that spending, the analysis that I undertook put some jobs to that, about 2.1 million jobs across all sectors of the economy. Right off the top, there'd be about 277,000 federal jobs. Nobody's addressed what the disruption to the private sector would be from the loss of those federal jobs. Can't assume those 277,000 federal workers don't do something. I guess maybe you could assume that, but if you're flying from one airport to another, some of those workers are in the tower. Meat inspection. Research at NIH. Department of Education, their grants wouldn't be cut back, they're exempt, but who would administer them? National parks would be closed, not just for a day. We, we get inconvenienced here periodically when they close something for a couple of days. Tourists do. For a year. Cutbacks don't start on the second. That's when officially they start, but most agencies won't do this on the second. They don't wait and see if it's for real. Let's assume it, if it is, I can't imagine it happening, but if it is for real. We're already a quarter into the fiscal year by that time. We may be two quarters before you start cutting back. So the cuts are much deeper because of the period to achieve a year's reduction is now six months. They're deeper and sharper. This has some, con some impact on the economy. You and I are affected. FBI doesn't have as many people doing what they do. Passports, you need to get a passport? It may take longer. Port inspections affect exports and imports. These have costs. I'm not arguing that you might not be able to do it more effectively in a different manner. Again, that's another, another story. I, I'd suggest that the collateral effects are even more important than the ones I've measured. These do have an impact on small businesses. Small businesses disproportionately provide the, the, uh, the, <laughs> the, the, the vendor and supplier services, the, the subcontractor services, and the induced so the services that are supported, retail, consumer service, other services that are supported by the labor 
income that would be reduced can't just move that into the private sector because it wasn't real money to begin with it was all borrowed the private sector can't generate it in two thousand thirteen by two thousand twenty one quite likely the i wouldn't want to argue the economy wouldn't be better off in ten years but next year it won't be better off small businesses account for fifty eight percent of the suppliers and vendors subcontractors and and businesses that support are supported by labor income 58% many of these i haven't studied them i only have anecdotal information but i'm told that if they lose a contract 10 or 15 20% of their business they have to shut down we've only measured what's lost if you take the federal money away but there's a consequence most private most small businesses aren't publicly traded most small businesses don't have a big backlog. They don't have geographic distribution. They have, they're specialized. They don't have funds uh, to, to offset losses. They, they fire people really quickly. They loo you lose specialized skills and ultimately a number of businesses. So there are secondary effects on the side of small business impacts. So I think the question here, I could spend more time, but I don't have too much time, I think the real question is if we are concerned about reducing the federal budget, which I think it's hard to find somebody that shouldn't be concerned about that. We're all concerned about being more efficient in the use of federal funds, our tax dollars. The question then should be, how do we do this to minimize these short-term effects so that we can get the long-term benefits? How do we do it with the least disruption to the business sector, the private sector, from the elimination or the of, of necessary jobs. Some regulation helps. I think food inspection is a good thing. Maybe not all of it, but certainly most of it. Um, how do we reduce the knowing what the negative effects are in some order of magnitude? How do we minimize these? How do we be more strategic in, in this activity? Uh, the, the workers won't be reemployed right away. They're probably pretty smart workers. They'll get employed at some point as the economy expands. It's a very weak economy to be doing this kind of spending shifts because it doesn't shift smoothly from public sector to private sector, and it doesn't produce tax reductions, which give you more disposable income. So I think the discussion, the theoretical discussion versus a more applied discussion may leave some room for discussion ourselves. Thank you. Yeah. Good. Thank you. Thank you both. Let me now introduce our third speaker, and I, I said how I was very pleased to welcome uh, Dr. Fuller here to Cato for the first time. Officially, I'm pleased to welcome back Steve Moore. Uh, he's a member of the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal, senior economics writer there. He's been there since May of 2005. Steve splits his time between Washington and New York, focuses on budget, uh, economic issues, tax, taxes, budgets, monetary policy. He was the founder and president of the Club for Growth, also served as president of an organization called the Free Enterprise Fund. 
Uh, but among the many other jobs he's held in the past, he worked for the Joint Economic Com uh, Committee of Congress, worked at the Heritage Foundation, but he was also a senior economics fellow here at the Cato Institute, where he published dozens of studies, including the governor's report card, right? Right, Steve? That was one of your first uh, works, which we still publish to this day, very popular. He was a consultant to, well, popular with some, I should say, those who score well, <laughs> popular with them. Um, he was consultant to the National Economic Commission in 90, 1987 and a research director for President Reagan's Commission on Privatization. Steve graduated from the University of Illinois and holds a master's degree in economics from George Mason. Thank Steve you. Moore. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for inviting me back to Cato. Um, uh, professor, it's, it's uh, terrific to be with you. I'm a George Mason uh, economics graduate. Uh, and uh, Ben, I, uh, I just love your study. <laughs> I think it's a fantastic piece of work, and it needed to be said. So thank you for writing this and doing the analysis. Uh, I agree with uh, virtually the entire study, and I think it is, it is spot on. Uh, you said almost all the things that I wanted to say, so let me just um, address a couple of things that... Uh, that uh, just as points of emphasis. Um, by way of, of uh, to start this, I wanted to say that um, I was privileged for many years uh, in the uh, 1990s uh, and through the mid-2000s to a couple times a year um, have um, lunch or dinner with Milton Friedman up in San Francisco. And it was just an awesome experience. It would be myself and Milton Friedman, and uh, Rose would be there, and then uh, oftentimes uh, one or two others would go, and we'd just talk about the economy, and I got to learn economics from the master. And I'll never forget, uh, Ben, one of my last conversations with uh, Milton. I said, well, Milton, what are the three things we could do you know, over the next 20, 50 years to increase the rate of economic growth in this country? And he said, uh, number one, um, school choice, which obviously is something he have pursued uh, very aggressively. Um, number two, uh, free trade. And the third thing he said is cut government spending. <laughs> and I said, well, Milton, uh, by how much? Um, and I'll never forget, he smiled at me and he said, by as much as possible. <laughs> and um, I think that's a, an interesting insight. I think if Milton Friedman were alive today, he would agree with just about everything that uh, Ben has said in his study. And one of the things that I find interesting is that the argument against um, doing these cuts um, and, and facing this fiscal cliff is that this reduction in government spending will cause um, all sorts of economic disruption. And, and certainly a lot of the points that Professor Fuller made are correct. But uh, I think the broader point is that, you know, that this is kind of a, generally a Keynesian idea. The government spending will stimulate the economy and that the reduction in government spending will, as Ben put it, destimulate the economy for the same reason. Except that as I read history and I look at the evidence on this, I mean, the thing that's so strange about Keynesian economics is it's never worked. I mean, there's hardly any evidence that these ideas work. They didn't work very well in the 1930s. They didn't work very well in the 1970s. They didn't work especially well for President Bush when he tried to do uh, a Keynesian stimulus in 2008. And quite obviously, it didn't work when we had the biggest um, Keynesian experiment maybe in the history of this country, which was uh, in 2009, where the unemployment rate actually went up. And actually, it's interesting, uh, Ben, I've looked at some of the studies on this. Why didn't the stimulus work? Why did the unemployment rate actually go up as the spending was going up? And, and the evidence is pretty clear, uh, just as a lot of the previous studies had suggested would happen, that just about for every dollar of increased government spending, private sector spending went down for a dollar. And that's because Milton Friedman had it right. There's no such thing as a free lunch. If the government takes a dollar out of the economy, it, it has to come from somewhere. There's no tooth fairy out there providing money. Now, Professor Fuller is exactly right that um, the, the most 
you know, immediately impactful way to pay for this would be to, for spending, would be to increase uh, taxes. That's not uh, what's uh, suggested here. The, the spending is actually being mostly financed, as you said, by, by borrowing. But I would make, I'm not quite as salutary as you are, Professor Fuller, about the effects of the borrowing. I think that um, somebody has to buy the bonds, right? So every dollar that you uh, borrow, that means somebody out there has to take to borrow the bond, and, and as I see it, every dollar of spending is, is still, even if it's not directly taxed, I think it's taking a dollar out of the economy. Now, let me, th that's the theory around this. Let's look at some of the evidence, and one of the things that I've looked at that you talked about, Ben, is exactly what happened in the 80s and 90s, and I, let me just focus on the 90s, because you're right, we had, remember, the uh, by, I, my, <clears throat> by my measurements, uh, we cut about $100 billion in real terms out of the defense budget um, after the Berlin Wall came down. So this was a significant reduction in uh, defense spending um, and, uh, you know, about as big as they're talking about right now and perhaps even bigger. And I remember at the time, by the way, there were all sorts of apocalyptic complaints about what would happen if we did these cuts. And, and, and uh, as you know, Professor Fuller, um, especially in states like Virginia that are heavily impacted by by defense spending, and your state of California. I think those two states probably have the biggest, um, are, are impacted most. And actually, California, I think, did go through a recession in the early 1990s, and people blame that in part on the, on, the, uh, on the defense cutbacks. The problem with that is Virginia actually took about proportionally the same amount of cuts, and we didn't see a recession in Virginia. Virginia actually found ways to grow in other areas, replace those uh, you know, um, defense contractors with high technology and so on. And so. Uh, I think that's a really good apt example. I'm so glad you bring that up in your study. Um, a couple of other points just uh, for, uh, for conversation. Uh, we had another um, cut in spending that we did that was similar to this uh, fiscal clip we were talking about, not of the same magnitude, back in, I think it was 86, 87, when we had the, uh, the Graham-Rudman, the first sequester. Uh, and I forget, you probably know the numbers, Professor, I forget exactly how much it was, but I think the average uh, cutback in these programs was somewhere in the magnitude of 2 or 3%. Now, that's not as big as we're talking about now, but it's interesting to see what happened about it in terms of how federal agencies responded. Uh, and, and the way they responded is, guess what? They found out that they could actually save money. <laughs> and we didn't see a reduction, for the most part, in vital services. I, I completely agree with you on the kind of programs you mentioned, things like um, you know, food inspection. Obviously, that's a critical function of government. Um, but what we found out is that, that these agencies were able, they, they whined and screamed about it, but they were able to find ways to cut inefficiencies out of their budgets, uh, and, and we were able to save the money without any kind of recessionary impact. And may I add that this idea that uh, that you know the, these federal agencies can't take uh, a, a cut of four or five or six percent, I think is is disproven by what's happened in the private sector. I and mean, one of the things that happened in this recession is that businesses did take. If you look at a lot of small businesses and large businesses as well. They, they went through this recession. The way they survived for the businesses they could survive is they found ways to, to reduce their budgets and their spending by 5%, 10%, sometimes 20%, and they came out of this stronger, actually. If you look at the balance sheets of companies now, they're, they're actually very healthy, and they've reduced a lot of their debt. And I guess then the point I'm making is if, if private sector companies can do that, then certainly the government can do it. Now, <clears throat> it would be one thing to say, well, gee, it's going to be hard to take a, a 5% cut or 10% cut. It depends, obviously, um, how long the sequester goes on. I mean, we're not talking about a one-year sequester. We're talking about potentially a series of years of this where the cuts get uh, deeper every year. But 
I just want to remind people that these federal agencies, especially the agencies on the domestic side of the equation, they just live through massive increases in their budgets. I mean, if you look at some of the numbers that the Budget Committee has come out with, they've shown that a lot of these domestic agencies, um, in fact, the average increase in spending on these agencies because of the, of, uh, the first two-year budgets under Obama and the, and the uh, big stimulus bill, their, their budgets increased by 40, 50, and in some cases over 60%. So can they take a 10% cutback off that inflated baseline? Uh, my answer to that, um, is hell yes, I think that they can. The last point I want to make um, is uh, is something that you you were talking about, uh, Professor. I agree with you. There's a lot better ways to do this, right, than, than a sequester. It's not. It's a. It is kind of a mindless uh, machete. The problem is they won't do any of the other approaches, right? I mean, the, the, I would. I think you and I could sit down and we could come up with a, with a much more um, efficient way to make the cuts that need to be made. Uh, but you saw, just taking an example of what happened last week when during the presidential debate, um, uh, Mitt Romney um, brought up, well, maybe we could cut, you know, corpor Corporation for Public Broadcasting spending. And look what's happened. I mean, in the last week, my God, I, I live in Virginia, so I see these ads. Oh, he's going to cut Big Bird, and Elmo isn't going to have a place to live, and all these things. I mean, that's the, and that's just one little tiny program in the budget, which probably isn't really, I mean, look, I think we'd all agree we can probably live without these subsidies. Um, think about if you tried to come up with it, and we've done this at Cato. I did this when I was at Cato. We came up with a laundry list of programs that could be eliminated. Absolutely, that would be a much more efficient thing to do. And more importantly, I think we'd all agree it would be much more efficient to cut Medicare and Social Security and these big entitlement programs rather than you know some of these uh, smaller programs in the budget, but they won't do it. And I actually think one of the values, I think the Republicans have made a strategic mistake politically in saying we don't want to do this defense sequester because in my opinion, the only way you're going to drag Democrats who don't want to cut the budget, and let's face it, there are not a lot of Republicans who don't want to cut the budget either, but the only way you're going to get them to the table is you've got to do these sequester cuts. And, and you've got to do them year after year until finally the Democrats say, God, we can't take any more of these cuts in these programs we care about. We're going to have to make sure that Warren Buffett doesn't get Medicare or, you know, um, or we're going to raise the retirement age, the things that we all need to be done. So I think I would make the case that one of the benefits of this is you keep squeezing these programs and finally they, they, the uh, politicians will cry uncle. So I'm very positive of this. One last quick point, maybe we can talk about this during the discussion. I am extremely concerned. I think it is a disaster if we do the tax increase next year. I think that will very easily cause a double-dip recession. I think the economy can't handle the increase in the personal income tax rates, the capital gains rates, the dividend taxes. You're talking about a severely damaging effect on the supply of goods and services on businesses and on investment at the very time the economy is so fragile. So that's where we should be aiming. We should make sure that the tax sequester doesn't happen, but I am all, at least for the first year, in favor of the, uh, of the sequester on the spending side. And Ben, thanks again for writing this important paper. Thank you very much. <clears throat>
in terms of job losses and, and economic uh, activity than would the defense spending, which is different from what others have concluded. I wondered if you would comment on that a little bit, but also to Steve's point, to Steve Moore's point, which is that uh, what would be the economic effects of tax increases to cover the debt in lieu of sequestration? Have you looked at that in the past? Do you have some, some sense of that? Or uh, either Ben or, or Steve want to weigh in that as well? And, and how long do I have? <laughs> <laughs> not long. We have many people who have been very patient, so I want to make sure uh, we have lots of time for questions no. from the audience, and not from me. The, the big difference between the proposed cutbacks in, in uh, DOD and non-DOD agencies is that non-DOD agencies are largely labor-driven, payroll-driven. They don't have big procurement budgets. And so the the almost equal reductions, a little bit greater, but, but let's call them equal from non-DOD agencies, largely take a toll on labor income, which goes into the economy differently than the, and it would cost us uh, 230,000 federal jobs right off the top, and about $30 billion in payroll spending. That has a much different impact on the economy. The loss of that, whether it just be for the first year or, or temporary, short-term loss of that, would have a much bigger impact than the impact on uh, DOD, which, which has only about 48,000 civilian payroll jobs at stake here, and the rest would be contractors. And contractors spend their money differently. They're not all payroll. The money moves through the economy in a little different fashion. When they get all done, the total impacts aren't too different. It's the timing of it. Um, I would want to suggest in, in that, that DOD has already taken a, a pretty big cut. When we think about slush and opportunities to cut further, they, they already have begun implementing a $487 billion 10-year spending reduction so presumably there's less slush against there. the previous baseline. Not in correct. Act, right. correct, right. correct. But it, it's you know presumably they they are making some reductions, and the non-defense agencies haven't most outside of Homeland Security and maybe another one haven't had much in the way of spending increases in their 11, 12, or 13 budgets. They're 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 working down based on inflation, so their budgets are already tighter as we begin to squeeze them further. So it's the opportunities to cut back. I think are are a little more difficult, and 2% is a whole lot easier than a 9.1%. But in any event, uh, I think it would be uh, a very bad policy move to increase taxes to try to pay our way out of this problem. I think some taxes, certainly some entitlements, are going to have to be adjusted to, re to change the revenue flows slightly and hopefully grow the economy stronger and reduce some spending where, where there's fat and where there are services that can be better provided in the private sector. I think that analysis is probably beyond the ability of Congress to figure out in, in the time that's available. But that clearly would produce, in my judgment, a better answer. But taxes, taxes, the fiscal cliff almost universally, I haven't heard anybody say that it wouldn't drive the economy into a recession next year. And, and I, I think that has to be avoided. It's a very very fragile economy at this point. Can I just say one, say one quick thing that I just forgot to say in my remarks that I think is really important. Um, look, if you read our Wall Street Journal editorials, you know we are against the defense sequester cuts. And, and that's not because of we think that defense spending is efficient for the economy. Um, it's because we are concerned about the national security 
implications of these cuts. And I think there's a the important distinction there, and I mean, and Ben makes this in his study. Look, if we need to spend the money to keep us safe, then absolutely we, we should spend the money. What I object to is the idea that spending the money is going to be good for the economy. And you know, look, this is a dangerous world. Professor Fuller is exactly right. The, we've already, you know, against the baseline at least, made some very significant cuts in defense. And, and these, there's no, no getting around it. I mean, these, these would cause um, you know pretty big reductions in, in troop levels and in our military equipment and, and uh, our uh, strategies in terms of deal with, with dealing with homeland security if we make the cuts. Um, and so I think, I guess the point I'm making is we should, we should make this decision based on national security, not based on, uh, you know, some kind of Keynesian stimulus to the economy. And just to be clear, the, the, sequest, the effects of sequestration would take the budget in inflation-adjusted terms back to 2007 spending level. Okay. So that's where we would be under sequestration uh, beginning of next right. year. Ben, do you want to add anything to this discussion? Well, yeah, I, I would actually. Um, one, one point, we have, I think, 2,500 M1 tanks in the inventory, something on that order. We are still producing them. Why? Because they're produced in Ohio, and Ohio is a swing state <laughs> with, what, 19 or 13 electoral college votes? I forget. It is not because we're worried about the Russian army pouring through the Fulda Gap anymore. Um, and so I think that, you know, Steve is really quite right when he says that I'm right. That <laughs> The issue is what are what are again what are our vital interests? What is the force structure needed to defend them, and what is the cost of that force structure? It is not whether or not there's going to be increased short-term unemployment in Virginia or Ohio or anywhere else. Um, now, second point, um, you know, Steve, I think unintentionally has kind of slipped into a Washington Monument game <laughs> sort of problem in which he talks about the passport office and um, and um, uh, any terrorist You have to activities. be specific about what Steve you're talking about. <laughs> the rest, I didn't quite hear what he said. Which Steve? Which, oh, I'm sorry, Steve Fuller. Oh, okay. Steve Fuller. You Steve guys, Fuller. you guys do look attention. so much. You Pay guys attention, Dr. Fuller. He's about do, do look so I'm much alike. <laughs> um, and you know the argument that somehow there are not things. Uh, assume away the privatization issue. That's a debate for another day. Ass the argument implicitly that there are not things we would cut first that have lower marginal value than the passport office and the rest. You know the drug war. The, the militarization of federal law enforcement, the um, why does the Food and Drug Administration have a SWAT team? <laughs> That's a, you know, I've not gotten a straight answer for that, to that question. I've asked it many times. Um, the, uh, the, the destructiveness of the entitlement programs. People, just to give you one example, people argue that with a s small tweak to the uh, indexing formula for Social Security, we could make it solvent for the next 70 or 80 years. True enough, that doesn't do anything about the economic damage caused by the Social Security system in terms of inducing people to save less, which has a result of reducing the capital stock and wages. And I, I don't want to get into all that, but, but uh, Steve's, again, I, I think Steve Fuller's <coughs> is slipping without thinking about it too carefully, as I interpret his comments, into the Washington Monument game, which is a very dangerous game to play intellectually. And then, and then third, let, let me return, Steve Fuller, again to my, to my crime example. If crime rates fall and 
There is a reduction in the size of the market for private security services, and therefore there is some short-term unemployment among those who otherwise would have provided private security services. Tell us why that's a problem. Please. All right. He'll have a chance to do that in response to another question, which is the other Washington game that we play in addition to Washington Monument. Okay. Um, thank you, gentlemen. Uh, so we now have time for questions. Uh, please wait for the microphone uh, for the benefit of those who are watching online and on C-SPAN. Uh, please identify yourself and your affiliation. And uh, one more thing, the Jeopardy rule applies here at the Cato Institute. That means please phrase your question in the form of a question. Uh, no speeches, please. Uh, who's first? Over here. Hi, Ben Freeman from the Project on Government Oversight. Uh, the question is for Dr. Fuller or anyone on the panel, really. <laughs> um, we mentioned that uh, if the Pentagon sequester doesn't occur, then um, taxpayers will basically be financing that additional Pentagon spending. I'm curious if, if you, Dr. Fuller, or, or anyone on the panel, has analyzed the job loss impact that, tax, that we would incur as taxpayers have to eventually pay that back with interest? I have not analyzed that, no. Would either of you care to speculate on what the effects of that would be? No, Larry Kotlikoff at Boston University has done a lot of work on that issue. You know, what are, what are, the, uh, what are the intertemporal effects of um, exponentially increasing government debt? And I, I would not confuse debt with interest payments. Those are two sides of the same coin. The debt, of the, the present value of interest payments, just the debt. So I, I, I'd be careful about that. But I don't remember Larry's most recent estimates of this. I'd have to go back and look. But if you just go to the Boston University website, and uh, or even just Google his name, Lawrence J. Kotlikoff, you'll find a lot of a lot of work on that very topic. Yeah, the, the way we put it, at the, uh, put it in our editorials is that spending is taxes, right? I mean, I think the kind of point of your question is, okay, so they say they're not going to raise taxes uh, you know, now to, when they do the spending. Well, that just means they're going to do it later. And, of course, we've seen that now. I mean, a perfect example is the stimulus bill. We had this $837 billion stimulus bill that didn't create jobs. All we got for it over the last you know, four years was all this accumulation of debt. And now, you know, we hear in the debates, oh, we have to raise taxes to pay for all this debt. So it's sort of a pay me now or pay me later approach. And I, I think that's a very valid point that at some point, you know, the, that spending always has to be paid for. And one of the ways we pay for it is, is taxes. And I think there's a very, you know, there's a lot of talk about fairness out there. Well, how is it fair that people, you know, who, have, who even, aren't even born yet are going to pay for a lot of the spending we're doing now? You don't, you don't believe, Steve, that to some substantial degree we're not just going to inflate it away? The average maturity of U.S. government bonds now is, what, five and a half years, I think? Um, most of which is not indexed. Um, and the Chinese hold lots of it. Uh, they don't vote. At least, you know, they may make con campaign contributions surreptitiously, but anyway, <laughs> I don't want to get into that. And so it strikes me, uh, to my simple-minded way of thinking, that the incentive to inflate away some substantial part of the debt is enormous. And uh, I, I cannot envision a world 10 years from now in which the inflation rate is not, is not substantially higher than it is now. Uh, in the back. <clears throat> Uh, 
I'm Peter Flink. I'm a Cato donator. I've known Steve for about 15 years. Oh, close to my mouth. Could you hear me? Yes, okay. go ahead. Go ahead. Cato donator. I've known Steve Moore for uh, more than 15 years. <laughs> Consider your personal friend. Uh, it's too late to get out of the stock market. You scared the hell out of me. <laughs> <laughs> Peter didn't have a question to ask. Next. <laughs> right there. <laughs> At least he kept it short, so, you know. <laughs> yes, go ahead, sir. I'm Michael Bruno. I'm a reporter with Aviation Week. I've got a question for all the panelists. Forget your uh, potential uh, political uh, favoritism of the argument, but how does the idea of allocating 4% of GDP uh, for defense spending, how does that play out in an economic sense? And is there an example somewhere else in the economy where that that's basically done. And how does how has that affected the economy? Percent, per, ahead, percent, ahead, of, percent of GDP is a measure of what we can afford. It is not a measure of what we need. And so once again, uh, we cannot talk sensibly about the required size and composition of the defense budget without doing some kind of serious analysis of U.S. vital interests. Um, I have not done that, although, well, I've, I mean, I've done some writing on that, but, but that aside, that is what is necessary. The point of the paper is that the public discussion is really not focused on that much more relevant question. What it is really focused on is an irrelevant question, which is what are the short-term employment and GDP effects of changes in the defense budget? and by implication and changes in other parts of the federal budget as well, which is the wrong question. The question is where resources used most productively in the economy and what is the path that ought to take us there. And percent of GDP really is neither here nor there except as a measure of what we can afford. You know, the, the, the 1990s, I, I, we keep going back to this, but, but they really are, are a very powerful counterexample. I mean, uh, you know, Ben, you mentioned some of the statistics about the, you know, reduction in spending in the 90s, and, and you mentioned what happened uh, with respect to the defense budget. But, you know, the, the domestic budget shrunk as well in the 1990s. And so, you know, if you look at when uh, Bill Clinton entered office, uh, federal spending was, I'm trying to remember, about 22 percent of GDP, uh, eight years later when he left office, we were a little over 18 percent. That, that's a big cut. I mean, that's a big cut in the cost of government, uh, four percentage points. And that was the biggest boom period we ever saw in this country. I mean, the economy never did better than it did in the, in the 1990s. So I just don't <clears throat> see any evidence that these cutbacks in spending, I mean, I agree with uh, Professor Fuller that doing it really rapidly overnight, you know, is going to cause some some dis dislocation, no question about it. But I, I do think that the medium and longer term effects of this will be quite positive. Dr. Fuller, you want to add anything to that? No, I, I agree with Steve in, in that, and, and I think uh, Ben as well, with respect to what the long term benefits are. The, the issues that I've raised, and, and, um, and it's beyond the Washington Monument effect, mm -hmm. is that cutting federal agencies uniformly, which is almost what sequester requires, doesn't allow federal agencies to decide that they can just do 2% this year and 3% or 10% the year later. They have to go in there and cut severely. And, and uh, 
DOD has already started that process, and, and I think uh, their ability to maintain their levels of readiness as, as has required of them, they claim at least, I can't judge this, are, are already close at hand. They, 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 they don't need any more tanks, but they need more, and maybe not as many F-35s, but they need more drones. There is a change underway. And uh, when I testified before the, the House Armed Services Committee, they said, I don't know this to be true, that they had never worried very much about the economic impacts of cutbacks. What they were worried about was the ability to complete the mission of, of uh, defense and, and defense readiness. And they were interested, Democrats and Republicans, both said, well, we can't have these impacts, but they couldn't agree, of course, how they were going to avoid them. And, and I think that's the issue today. Uh, Michael, to your question also, I think you know we've done a fair amount of work on the 4% question, trying to calculate what that would be. We're not the only one, I'm not the only one, others around town have done that. I now see that the Romney, uh, Romney camp is, uh, is claiming that these numbers, the $2 trillion figure is, uh, is made up, and, and that's fine. You come up, please, please tell us what you think the additional cost is, because <coughs> presumably someone there has done the math. Uh, it's not that complicated. Uh, one other point on the on spending and uh, and defense, uh, it is true the total military spending has in inflation adjusted dollars has come down very slightly over the last few years. Most of that uh, attributed to the end of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan or the drawdown in Afghanistan, which is impending. Ben references this a bit in his paper. Most Americans think that's a good thing. The base Pentagon budget in inflation adjusted dollars remains very close to its historic high. Uh, in spite of the supposed You cuts. mean relative to inflation? Or? Yeah, in inflation-adjusted uh, right, dollars. Right. The base budget is basically flat right. over the last few years. And under sequestration, as I already pointed out, yes, you go back to about 2007 levels, which was, again, a historically high point. Uh, but under current projections, independent of sequestration, uh, the base budget actually uh, uh, holds constant and increases very slightly for the rate of inflation. So, um, uh, Yes, sir, go ahead. And then, and then uh, here, go ahead. <laughs> Robert Shredd, I'm president of International Investor, and um, I'd like to, a small disagreement with Mr. Zyker. You, I think I heard you say defense spending or any other line items could be measured as what we could afford when looked at as a percent of GDP. I, I think that is the wrong benchmark for us to use. So very briefly, let me just say <coughs> no private sector organization in the world would ever use the number of widgets it produced in the course of a year to compare any of its line items for spending or to determine where it should invest its money in the future. Rather, profitability is the key mm -hmm. benchmark that they always use. They have to use it. We should do more of the same. Instead of a Soviet-style mm. outlook as far as our government spending is concerned, we should be concerned with what we really have left at the end of the day. Now, we know that's deficits right now, but that is all the more reason why both sides of the equation have to be looked at. The is spending there, is there side. A question, sir? Yeah, I'm sorry, the spending <laughs> side and the revenue side. So, my question is, uh, and, and I think Mr. Fuller might sh shed some light on this, when we look at productivity in the end, when we look at the line items of our budget and we see. Is there a difference between spending the money on uh, some of the military hardware versus spending the money in other sectors of the economy, not just in terms of the multiplier effect for jobs and the, and, and the uh, 
the velocity of money in the economy over the immediate years, but in long-term productivity gains, research and development, what a train would produce, let's okay. say, in terms of moving freight. Okay. Thank you. Uh, just one quick comment on this. I mean, I, I love what you just said, and I, I agree really so much with it. And look, one of the problems with government, because there is no profit in, you know, in government by definition, is we tend to measure, uh, you know, our commitment to these things by how much we spend. You know, I mean, the perfect example, I mean, is, well, we do this with the military budget, obviously, but, you know, my favorite example that we talk, we talk a lot about it when I was at Cato is education. <laughs> I mean, the president keeps saying we're going to improve education by spending. We measure education by how much we spend, not by test scores and other things. And, and so I think that's a very big deficiency of government. And you're quite right. We should change the metrics by which we measure these things, because you know what? It would be better if we actually spent less on education and better, got better test scores. Okay, uh, here. Uh, David Eisenberg, Huffington Post. Um, this follows on a bit to the previous question, but because I've heard different things during the course of these presentations, I want to try and get clarity. Uh, my question is this to Dr. Fuller and anybody else who wants to respond. Over the years, the economic literature I've read suggests that when it comes to job creation, spending on what we might term the military, industrial, professional services complex, as to be accurate about it nowadays, is the least efficient way for, to create jobs. Uh, almost anything would be better, digging ditches, <coughs> solyndra, uh, solar panels, whatever you want. Um, so if, that, if, you, if, you, if that's true, then should we not actually be pleased uh, that a possible sequestration would in fact uh, be uh, cutting money from the least efficient job producing aspect of government? Thank you. Let me, if Greg, the, 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 oh, I'm he sorry. He directed this, it's okay, we'll get, you, we'll get you too bad. He directed yeah, this to Dr. Fuller first. So let's go to Dr. Fuller first. I don't think I will argue with you that, that, um, money spent in government is, is less efficient than in the private sector. I think the, the literature pretty well established that. And so if I were examining the impacts of sequestration in terms of job creation, is this a good way to create jobs? I might produce a different outcome than what I reported, which is if you take $51 billion out of DOD and 57 or whatever the numbers are out of non-DOD isn't going to have an impact on employment. Will it increase unemployment? Is there some aspect, some economic consequence that we should be aware of in making that decision? And if it's severe, and, and it is, I, I'm, I'm willing, I'm not the only one that comes up with these kinds of numbers, that there is a consequence. Were those jobs created efficiently? I wouldn't, wouldn't argue that. If you buy fewer airplanes, will there be fewer airplane manufacturing jobs? Yes. What will those people do? Well, they'll do something other than manufacture airplanes, and they may be out of the manufacturing sector entirely. They're, and is that good? I'm not sure. Does it cost us something? Yes. Unemployment does have a cost. This would add probably a point, point and a half to unemployment rate. Is that good? I can't imagine that anybody could argue that it's a good thing, not in the short term. 
And so I think you have to look at this and then decide in, in those terms and then decide, well, how do we minimize those kinds of consequences and achieve less federal spending and more growth in the private sector? I'd love to have that discussion. Let's have Ben. Ben, go ahead. Yeah, uh, the, the premise underlying your question, forgive me, is precisely wrong. Jobs are a cost of government spending, not a benefit, as counterintuitive as that may seem. Why? Suppose President Obama were to say, my energy policies will increase the use of high-quality steel. That would be great for the steel producers and for the steel workers, but for the economy as a whole, that's a cost because the resources used to produce the steel would no longer be available for other uses. That's the classic definition of an opportunity cost. Similarly, government spending that consumes labor, or that the labor consumed by government spending programs is a cost of that program because the worker, that labor can no longer be used in other sectors. Government spending programs, or the, the, the employment created by government spending programs has to come out of other economic sectors, whether in the government sector or the private sector, and therefore is an adverse effect, the cost, not a benefit in the aggregate of the government spending program. Again, as counterintuitive as that may seem. The way I've said this is government doesn't create jobs, it moves jobs. Right. Uh, next. Don't be shy. There's someone in the corner. Ah, back there. Thank you. Uh, hi, Andrew Jensen from Coalition of Service Industries. Um, the way I see it with regard to sequestration or um, the budget deficit in general, you have two options. One, do nothing, and thus let it let the sequestration kick into effect. The economy will shrink. Can you speak up just a little bit. Hold it. Yeah, there economy could shrink. Thank you. Uh, there could be, uh, you know, some negative impact. The other is to do something, and that something will involve some adjustment of tax uh, policy or spending policy. However meager it is, if we do something, it will increase the size of the bubble and or would risk increasing the size of this bubble. And then it only furthers our dependence on the government's intervention, uh, whereas they could be this, the source of the, the problem. Let's, so uh, my, my question questions. is Go just, ahead. can you please respond to that? I think it's clear to me to do nothing would be better let this happen, let the dust settle, and then move on, rather than risk increasing the size of the bubble. Or, or maybe, and uh, thank you for your question, or maybe to rephrase it, if, if doing nothing isn't the right solution, what is the grand bargain, what is the grand solution that was uh, tried and failed numerous times just within the last few years? Well, of course, well, of course, the reason we have this whole discussion is that the, you know, the, the debt talks blew up. Um, I think that's because the Democrats wouldn't agreed to anything that didn't have a major tax increase, and I think that the, the Republicans were right under that circumstance to walk away from the table. I, I do actually, I, I'll, I do think that, um, you know, Joe Biden had a point last night, one of the few points that he had, which was, you know, it is true, the, you know, the Republicans agreed to this, right? They agreed, you know, this was the deal, that if we can't reach an agreement, we're going to do these cuts. And I do think, you know, they're kind of going back at it now, saying, oh, well, we didn't mean we were going to do defense cuts. Well, everybody knew what the default position was if we didn't come to an agreement. Uh, and I guess the point I was trying to make um, in, in my remarks was, I think it's important to do the sequester because I think it actually makes it more likely 
you know, and it's going to cause some pain and suffering, no question about it. But I do think it makes it more likely that we get some, you know, some some real progress on these much bigger issues about these runaway uh, entitlements. How do we reform, reform the tax system? The, the big boulders of the budget that need uh, fixing. I would argue that the world isn't so simple that there are only two choices. You've offered only two choices. I think there's, I've been arguing that there's a third, fourth, fifth, sixth. I do think that the, the sequestr sequestration was the poison pill. Right. And, and it's slowly getting people's attention. It's really taken a long time. And it would be awful that that's what it takes in order to get Congress actually to come to terms and, and work out a, a proper solution to tax policy and to spending policy, but, but it, it may be. Uh, I think there's other choices, and that's what I would argue for. Ben? Yeah, I, I agree pretty largely with Steve on this. The sequester, however blunt a tool it is, has the supreme virtue of forcing not Congress so much, but the electorate to okay. make a choice. Right. And, and I think whoever wins the election in three weeks uh, will have a mandate, I would assume, or can claim a mandate, at least plausibly, to uh, move forward with something other than a sequester if, if that is what the electorate indicates. But I think the sequester is really quite, quite a useful tool for forcing, forcing both the electorate and Congress to make decisions. Can I ask you two, can, well, can, can I ask these two guys a quick question, yeah, that, uh, if I may? Um, I, want, I would like both of you, if you feel um, up to it, um, to, to address this issue about, I've heard a lot of arguments made by um, some people saying that, you know, the Defense Department is a major driver of technology and that, you know, the Defense Department is what gave us the internet and it's what's given us cell phones and all of these technologies. And I, and I, I don't know enough about it, I'm not an expert at this, but I, I wonder if uh, maybe you, Ben, first uh, could discuss that I mean are we is it pro investment to spend money on the military or would it be I mean I, maybe the other argument is look if we're not wa wasting all this money on things we don't have to spend on in terms of military systems it might actually enhance technology but what, what is your view on that my view is a two, two, uh, two sort of a two-part answer both of which are very brief a the purpose of defense services broadly speaking is to defend capital against foreign foreign and aggressors foreign destruction both physical and human, uh, et cetera. Uh, so to the extent that the defense budget is too small, then you might get too little investment because of a fear of foreign confiscation, et cetera. That's a reasonable argument. I think we're not in that world, but that is a reasonable conceptual problem. The second point is that how did we ever move from, uh, from caves to buildings, from fire to uh, telephony, et cetera, without a massive defense structure? Uh, government can subsidize basic research to the extent that there's some, some sort of under, under incentive in the private sector to engage in that sort of investment. I'm not convinced of that, but that's certainly not an, uh, an unreasonable argument. But beyond that, I don't, other than the corporation income tax, which forces the private sector to use too high a discount rate and therefore invest too little, I don't see any or reasons to believe that, uh, that the market invests in technological advance in, in, a, in an inefficiently small, to an inefficiently small degree. So I've never really bought the argument that it's, you have to have a large defense establishment in order to drive an efficient amount of technological investment. I just don't buy it. Well, there's been, there's been a lot of attention given to innovation and that, that is underwritten uh, or supported by federal spending that, that could be lost, whether it's NF, 
the National Science Foundation or NIH or NIST or, or, or DARPA, uh, that, that they can take risks that the private sector can't take. Could we get that another way? We used to, when AT&T ran the Bell Labs as a monopoly, we used to get basic research. The R&D that is being funded in the private sector today is more about the D and less about the R, and that research isn't basic to the extent it, it was and, and is, has to be tied to product development. And so I think there's some public interest in that. What I would be most concerned about uh, following up on Ben's comment is that, that we're putting this up to a vote in three weeks, a little less than three, a little more than three weeks, and the voters don't know what the issue is. They're not voting on sequestration. They don't understand the role of government. Uh, they may say, well, it's too big. To, I want my taxes lower, but they don't understand what they may be giving up. And so whether it's some the meat inspectors or the easy things that I identified, most of us can't identify what benefits we get from the federal government. I would assure you if you take 275 federal workers, 275,000 out of 2 million out of the system really quickly, and in fact that number would have to be double that if you wait until April 1st to do it in order to get the, the achieve the one-year reductions in half a year, you're going to notice it. And it's too late to vote then. So I can't think that we can leave this up to a vote. I, I also, I was going to pick up on that point too, because that's where I, I disagree with you, Ben, a little bit. I don't think that bo both candidates have expressed opposition to sequestration, but they have not clearly articulated what their alternative is. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's a problem. Right. <laughs> so uh, so I, I, I do disagree with you a little bit. Uh, quite, you know, let me address I, that, though. I, I mean, wait a minute. we've had this whole discussion on uh, something that's not going to happen. I mean, I would bet anyone four to one odds that they're going to turn off the sequester. It's not going to happen. And, By just uh, turning it off? Yeah. By not doing anything? Well, they may do something else, but in the short term, the first thing they're going to do is turn it off. Okay. Uh, because they're not going to meet, reach any kind of, so win the lame duck session the or. Entire, so this is all much to do with. The entire debt ceiling thing was a complete charade. Yes. And, and all yeah. of the people, now hold on no, a second. No, it is. Hold on a second. <clears throat> all of the people who held the line on the debt ceiling, again, they, they confronted Speaker Boehner with that. that. They were holding the line on that. Right. They're all going to say, never mind, what we were holding the line on in the summer of 2011 suddenly doesn't matter anymore? Not I all of them, but enough of them will. Okay. <laughs> I think. Okay. I don't know do you, okay. if either okay. of you okay. once, once again, I find myself in the usual uh, quite, quite familiar position of disagreeing with everybody about everything. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, yes, yes, neither Romney nor Obama have specified a specific program about how to proceed on the budget. Nonetheless, it is not very difficult to predict that, that an Obama second term would emphasize increased domestic spending and less defense spending to some kind of loose degree, with Romney emphasizing the opposite. Second, the argument that people don't know is an extremely weak argument, frankly. Uh, people, you don't, the mass of voters doesn't need to understand this. It's only the marginal voters who need to understand. And I have an old paper on why the rational voter ignorance model is wrong, but I'm not going to summarize <laughs> that today. But in any event, uh, yeah, the argument that people are dumb, I think, is not very predictive uh, about actual voting behavior. People understand their interests, and I think vote, vote accordingly. 
It's 115, Steve. I don't know if you needed to, to slip good. out. You good? Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, other questions? Here in the front? I'm uh, Jean Athey with Peace Action. And uh, first, I would like to um, thank Dr. Preble for correcting the error that I conceive, uh, believe that you made, uh, Mr. Moore, uh, in by saying that the um, Pentagon budget has dramatically or is being dramatically decreased. And um, I think that Dr. Preble is absolutely correct that the, the, the decrease in the base budget is very small and isn't actually projected to grow in inflation-adjusted terms. So I think that's really an important point to, to have included in this discussion. Uh, also, um, Professor Zyker um, mentioned that uh, he hasn't done uh, or that, that, that an analysis of, of specific defense cuts is a separate thing that needs to be done. And I would also like to point out that Dr. Preble has done an outstanding study of that. It's a Cato uh, document. And I would encourage people to take a look at that because it's, it's really quite excellent. But my question, my question. question. <laughs> question. Quickly. My question is, um, uh, Earlier, someone um, mentioned the uh, production of uh, tanks in Ohio, and uh, and and the the political implication being that the reason those tanks are being made is is because of the election there. Um, a number of people have identified the fact that uh, that, that the the large. Um, uh, uh, defense contractors like uh, Boeing and Lockheed and so forth, they have systematically distributed <laughs> their subcontractors right. throughout the country. Yes. And um, if we accept Dr. Preble's analysis of the extent to which defense cuts can be made safely without uh, affecting our security, what is the, how, how can we address the power of these huge corporations and the way in which they have distributed their um, their subcontractors. Go ahead, Ben. Yeah, uh, um, I, I don't agree with your premise. Uh, I have another paper, actually, on why a certain amount of defense pork is efficient. And the basic argument is that to the extent that defense services are what economists call a collective good, they accrue to everyone. Um, the, they, the, the benefits from defense spending, this is a very simple argument, but accrue to everyone and non, people who don't pay their taxes can't be excluded from consuming them. That's what a collective good means. Well, and the standard textbook argument for government, or one of them, is that, is that the market will underprovide collective goods and therefore we need government to step in and provide the efficient amount of collective goods. That's the basic <laughs> kind of econ one textbook argument. The problem is, if you think that problem through carefully, what you'll realize is that government also, under a majority sort of decision process, also has incentives to provide too few collective goods. So by <clears throat> positioning defense bases and, and manufacturing facilities in every congressional district you can, that's one way of actually correcting for what ought to be called a government failure in order to get, get the provision of collective goods up to the efficient level. So I think, I think the argument you're making that there's some sort of, you know, government, I won't say conspiracy, you didn't say that, but, but this effort on the part of corporations to do evil by getting us to spend too, too much on, on defense is really, I think, not, not right. Uh, other questions? Uh, in the back. Need to keep a microphone in the back. <laughs> Go ahead. Hi, Ethan Rosencrantz with the Commonwealth Institute. Uh, Dr. Fuller, if a short-term 
decrease in government spending costs jobs and, and impacts economic growth, would you advocate for a short-term increase in government spending across the board to increase jobs and economic growth? <laughs> You're asking me if I'd advocate it. Um, probably not, but would it? Would it? I think you can strategically place federal spending in ways that it would generate a quick increase in employment. But still, you know, we have a surplus of workers, it is, and we have a surplus of capital. The kind of analyses we're talking about are assuming that there's a shortage somewhere right now, and so that we, we either create more work for People who pick up paper along the roadside, not very good jobs, but I, we could fill those jobs with people who are unemployed if we wanted to, just to put them back to work. Maybe pay, pay them more cleaning up than, uh, than what they're getting on, on um, unemployment insurance. I'm not sure, since that <laughs> pays pretty well these days. <clears throat> well, then why was the stimulus such an abject failure? Well, I, I'd argue that the, if you, you track the performance of the economy in the uh, six quarters following the, the beginning of the recovery, that it actually performed better than it would have had that stimulus net money not been in, in circulation. It, I don't think it was, I think the, the economy would have been in much worse shape today than had there not been some stimulus. At the time the stimulus was designed, I don't think it was implemented very well or designed very well, but at the time that it was designed, it was thought that the recession was a 2.8% recession. It turns out it was a 3.5. They did It wasn't big enough, you could argue. I don't think that it was just, you can say it was a failure, I mean, that's what you get away with in, in the presidential, vice presidential debates, but, you know, the fact checkers need to be at hand here, too. Other questions? Uh, back there. Hi, my name is Mike Jadu with the BEA. And I just have a quick question for the panelists. Let's say if the budget cuts does take place, what would, in regards to military strength numbers, what are your estimates on the percentage decrease? I'm sorry, what are the estimates of what? What would be the effect, what would be the size of the cuts on the military in terms of, uh, in terms of actual uh, fighting efficiency, fi fighting effectiveness. The strength numbers. Right. Um, troops. Recruitment. I'm not qualified. I mean, 10 percent is a good round figure. There's the personnel expen personnel expenditures. Some personnel expenditures are exempt s explicitly by the BCA, and others have been carved out by by the Obama administration and said they would they would keep them protect protected. Um, but just to be clear, when we asked Ben to to write this paper for us. That was after Ben Friedman and I had written a paper arguing for cuts twice the size of sequestration <laughs> annually over 10 years. And so we have mapped out, and we're not the only ones. There are other organizations in this city that have mapped out other plans for reducing military spending, uh, not on the grounds that it has an economic effect, but because it is simply not necessary. Because, to use the crime analogy, thankfully, crime has declined. Uh, and therefore, the need for those security services has also declined. Uh, so I, th I would encourage you to look at, at, at our earlier study from 2010, uh, but to others, Sustainable Defense Task Force, uh, even uh, the Bull Simpson had some uh, talk in there about, uh, about um, uh, military spending and what that would look like. Right. But one then, impact there's of this. There's one further point to make, and that is that if you look at the budgets, at the baseline numbers, uh, exclude the overseas contingency operations, 
For the out years, those numbers are slightly phony uh, because the cuts assume that the baseline actually will, will have been what would have been spent in the absence of the sequestration. I'm not convinced of that at all. Uh, those numbers actually may have been smaller, in which case the sequestration cuts are smaller as a proportion of what actually And I think, you know, adding to that, I mean, one of, the, one of the reasons I'm in favor of a sequester, even regardless of what happens, I think that any deficit reduction strategy should start with an across-the-board cut in agency spending, domestic and defense. And, you know, maybe the defense cuts are too big, you know, uh, in terms of security, but, but I do think at least some cuts across the board, even in defense, need to be made. And, and one of the things we haven't mentioned is, you know, my area of expertise is the budget. I don't know a lot about uh, military issues, but I do know this. If you put in place even one year of a sequester, the, the, the savings are not just for one year. You, in fact, the savings magnitude hugely over the next 5, 10, 20 years because what you've done, you've got, a, you've got an arch, you know, a, a, a spending growing at this magnitude, and what you do is you ratchet it down by, by this amount in the first year. So you're, you, know, you may save, I don't know what the numbers are, just making them up. Let's say it's $100 billion of savings in the first year, but over 10 years you're talking about $2 trillion of savings because every year you get this kind of... Um, you know, a multi a negative multiplier effect. Change the baseline. Yeah, exactly. And that is a very, and that's what happened in 86, 87. And actually it was one of the things that helped pr produce the, the uh, lower deficits in the 1990s. Okay, we have time for one more question. Uh, right here, sir. Um, in respect to defense spending, economic, economic effects of defense spending. Uh, my name is John Shermer, uh, U.S. Army, obviously. Uh, the question is, uh, well, there's, there's three components of defense spending. You know, you've got your force structure, you've got your readiness, and you've got your modernization. And what are the effects of defense spending in each of those on the economy? You know, it seems to me like to look at it from the aggregate is, is interesting, but, but to also drill down into, you know, a dollar that goes into force structure, what does that buy us? from an economic perspective, a dollar that goes into modernization, what does that buy us? And a dollar that goes into readiness, what does that buy us? You'd, you'd, you'd have to have a market in which those things are priced, mm -hmm. and we don't have that. We just can ask the question much more qualitatively, what are the contributions of those functions to, quote, national security, unquote, and then try to put a value on that, or at least an effectiveness measure. It's, try, it's like trying to measure the military effectiveness of a division. How do we do that? Well, we have division equivalent firepower and WeWeb scores and all that stuff, but it's very difficult to measure those things in dollar terms. But Dr. Fuller, you chose to focus on the procurement aspect, on the $45 billion, as opposed to other, and, and presumably there was a reason, I mean, maybe, maybe you could answer that question in a different sort of way, and why you focused on that and not other aspects of military spending. Yeah, in that, that uh, October 2011 piece that I did, I've focused only on military equipment. And, and we, we had estimates of what kinds of cutbacks would, would uh, what the magnitudes would be across different procurement categories. And so it was, it was easier to do, it was finite, it was early in the, in the, the discussion of, of the Budget Control Act. Uh, we always excluded military payroll because they had been largely exempted even though there, there are cutbacks in the, in the Budget Control Act number one, the one that's already in place, uh, and those have been announced. But the, the others are non-military, civilian DOD workers and, and, and uh, operations and maintenance. I, mean, I define it differently than your three categories. 
and procurement of hardware and software. So we've covered the entire budget that would be eligible. Doesn't mean that it'd all be hit equally hard. And so I think it's very difficult to say what the impacts would be. And, and then the opportunity costs of those kinds of, of, which are what Ben's talking about in some cases, hard, impossible to analyze unless you have an alternative. All right, well, uh, I want to thank you all. Please join me in, in, uh, uh, for a continued discussion in the George M. Yeager Conference Center. Thank you.